0: Good morning. Uh, We've been working through our short series on the verses in Scripture that have and contain the phrase, but God. And if you are uh, interested, you should go and look at uh, our brother Israel in the back, who's working in the soundboard right now. And he has a shirt that says, but God, on the shirt, and ask him where he got it. And maybe next week we'll all come in with, but God shirts. Uh, Let's open up to the book of Psalms, and I'll be reading from Psalm 49. Psalm 49. To the choir, Master a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of a lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning." Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask for his holy and divine help as we seek to understand it. Father, we thank you for your Word which is living and active, indeed it is a light into our dark lives. Father, we pray now that as we come before it, you would by your Spirit use it sharply to pierce within our hearts and souls and spirits and convict us of sin. Father, use your Word by your Spirit to reorient our perspectives to those things that are true and good and eternal. And Father, use your word now, we pray, to bring us closer to our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. May we in faith behold him. Father, we pray that in faith we would delight ourselves in he and he alone, not only for our good, but for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, speaks of this psalm in this way, saying that the scope and design of this psalm is to convince men of their sin and folly in setting their hearts on the things of this world and to persuade them to seek the things of a better world, there where the people of God will find their ultimate comfort. We see also that the psalm isn't just a mere treatise meant to convince and persuade, though it does do that. But it's that in a song. It's it's written, as the superscript says, for the choir master, written by the sons of Korah, that family of sons who is committed to the singing worship of the temple. And you see there in verse 4 that this psalm is to be thought through with music over the playing of a lyre or the strumming of a harp. Perhaps Keith can put his mind to putting this psalm to music and we can sing it in the not-too-distant future. In fact, Verse 4 invites us in as if the psalmist has just sat down himself before God's Word, reading through the book of Proverbs, perhaps, because he brings that up, and he's strumming his harp and thinking through the great wisdom of God's Word, and he's inspired here to invite everyone into his meditation. He invites all people, right, to come and to give ear, he says, Whether you're rich or poor, come listen in to the meditation of my heart. There's a riddle I want us all to consider. What is this riddle? Well, it's a problem that has universal significance. Verse 1 tells us it's for all people, for every inhabitant of this world. It's for people high in the ranks of power, as well as for people very low on the societal totem pole. Rich people and poor people have to deal with this problem, with this riddle. So what is this enigma? He tells us in verses 5 and 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble and days of evil when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, when those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? What's he saying here? Well, he's asking a very pertinent question and one which really gets at the heart of what a lot of people focus on. The attention of their hearts and minds are given towards this, the accumulation of wealth. But the way that the psalmist sets this up, it's fascinating. He brings up the topic of wealth, but he does so through the lens of fear. Do you see that? And specifically, fearing others around us who are accumulating and gaining and trusting in their wealth. Notice, too, down in verse 16, how he's going to return to this very idea. He'll conclude this entire psalm in verse 16 by telling us, Don't fear. Be not afraid when man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. But what is it about the wealth of others that make us to fear? Perhaps you're thinking, I don't get afraid when others gain wealth. I don't fear the rich. But consider, how much attention do we give to those who really are wealthy? If Jeff Bezos or Oprah Winfrey were to walk in right now and sit among us this morning, would your attention be completely attuned to my preaching in this sermon? Or would your heart and mind wander constantly thinking, I wonder what she's thinking about right now? Do rich people listen to sermons like this? The accumulation of wealth often adds levels of gravitas and and weight to people that they otherwise wouldn't have. And if we're honest, being in front of them often makes us a bit nervous. That's fear. We see something of that in verse 13, I think. The rich person has followers who hang on their every word Wealth attracts followers. Think about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. I mean, everything this guy has done or said is considered as divinely inspired. Even more incredible, though, is the pedestal we give to people on issues concerning culture, politics, theology, or even science, who have no expertise in these areas but are only known because they're wealthy. Well, what do you have to say in this matter? Today, gravitas and significance are attributed to... Whomever possesses the most riches. And often enough, if you gain enough money, you even begin to see yourself in a new and an important light. Yes, Kanye West did say he's running for president in 2020. One of the problems that this psalm addresses, and frankly it's a problem that's still around today, is the problem of the prosperity of the ungodly. A lot of people struggle with why bad things happen to good people, but but really the more frustrating issue, isn't it, is, is why do good things constantly happen to bad people? The prophet Jeremiah wrestled with this very problem when he asks the pointed question, why do the wicked always prosper? The prophet Asaph in Psalm 73 dealt with the very same thing, noting how he envied the wicked, who still always seemed to come out on top and enjoyed their wealth and fine food and riches. What about those who aren't even necessarily wicked, but nevertheless enjoy a ton of money? How often do we think about them? Sure, we don't envy the wealth of John Gotti and how he wickedly gains and spends his money. But how about Bill Gates, or again, Oprah Winfrey? They've gained their wealth in generally honest ways, and they're certainly very, very rich. And yet our hearts, I have no doubt, our hearts can spend an awful lot of time envying or thinking about their wealth. There's a kind of fear that is set in, isn't there? I'm not as wealthy as I could be. I see their wealth and, and how they're living, and I, I, I don't have that. All my problems could be just dealt with so much more comfortably if I was at that level. There's a fear of the rich that evidences itself in how we try and, and keep up with the Joneses next door. Ah, did you see the new car? We, we can do that. Let's try and do that. We envy wealth. We have a proclivity, I think, to trust in wealth and in in being wealthy. Yes, even Christians can make money an idol. How often do we count the successful churches as the churches that are wealthy and are bringing in money each and every Sunday? That's the church that's blessed and highly favored. And flavored. Their potlucks are better flavored. There's certainly a benefit to wealth, isn't there? Having money. and I mean, a lot of money can often be used to make sure your name is known throughout the coming generations. If someone remembers your name after meeting you just once, doesn't that mean oh, there's, there's some kind of weight? You hold a place in their, in their memory. They, they, they value and, and there's import in your name. And how often do the rich and powerful have their names precede them? You know who they are even before you meet them. There's a subtle fear and anxiety that can set in when you, when you go up to meet that famous, rich, and wealthy person. We tend not to think, you know, they, they put their pants on just like I did this morning, one leg at a time. Now we think, oh, here's an important person. Here's a person whose name everybody knows. And, and you act weird and shaky around them. And it's the rich who usually have that inside track on preserving that important name even after they die. Verse 11 speaks of how they tend to name lands after themselves. And not just lands, but parks and universities and buildings. Think of some of the the great names that have been preserved only because of great wealth. Carnegie Hall, Rockefeller Plaza, Vanderbilt University, the Ford automobile, Trump Tower. You'll probably never find your name on a building or a car or a university. Why? It's because we're so humble. No, it's because we're not rich. We don't have the money to do that. Wealth, we so often think, is what either makes or breaks a man. Husbands so often live with the fear, don't they, that they won't be able to provide for their families because they've not made enough money. Sure, we love our families, and love for our families moves us to work hard, but how much is fear actually mingled into that? Fear that I won't be able to make enough. What is enough? I see my high school friends making this much. Social media now sets the standard and bar this high, and then I want to not look like a failure in front of them. And so you see how fear begins to kind of mingle in and, and get into your DNA. And our psalmist is asking the question, why should I fear? Verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. He gives us three reasons in this passage why we shouldn't Fear. Three reasons. The first reason is that death is certain. Do not fear those who are wealthy. And do not fear the accumulation of wealth for yourself. Why? Because death is inescapable. Death is inescapable. In verses 10, 11, and 12, the psalm reminds us that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man and his pomp will not remain. He is like all the beasts that perish. The point is that death is inevitable, and that when it comes, we must leave everything behind. This reality should remind us that in the end, wealth is not something to be prized. Those who get rich and gain wealth need not be feared because, well, death in the end is the great equalizer. But we also see, I think, the riddle in a little bit more detail here. The psalmist is reminding us that there's something about money and possessions that can make a man forget about his own death. Our understanding of the the, the vanity and the brevity of life often diminishes with the amount of money we get to spend the guy that has money to buy and enjoy his jet skis in the summer and, and, and take his, his ski trips in the winter, he often isn't thinking about death. Why? Well, he's having too much fun skiing. This is particularly poignant for us today where we live in a society that not only hides the ugliness of death, Right? People die behind the clean, closed doors of hospitals and, and where we leave the handling of our dead ones to an entire industry of folks who, who keep it out of sight and out of mind. We, we, we don't handle death. But we also live in a society that is, frankly, so prosperous that we're too distracted to even really consider the inevitable reality of our own looming death. Verse 10 tells us that we can see that all people die, but the issue seems to be here is that we refuse to consider it. It's a reality that's too dark and, and it stirs up fears and anxieties too heavy to deal with. That we, we give ourselves to the numbing, of felt, uh, numbing effects of wealth and prosperity. Right to, to honestly sit and consider the very end of your life. The distinct possibility that when you die at some unknown hour, perhaps tonight... And an unknown eternity will await you. All that is loved, everything that's enjoyed and experienced here will end. Will you stand at the bar of eternity and experience unending darkness? Will you experience eternal gloom? Is hell real? And the sufferings of eternal death? Perhaps God will forgive me on that day. Perhaps he won't. What will happen when I die? Do you see? These questions, if thought through consistently and constantly, can lead to a very real fear and anxiety that that we instead turn to the true opium of the masses, which is the pleasures of this life. And for the psalmist, we become no better than the animals and beasts that perish. That's what he's saying in verse 12. Man, in his pomp, will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Mankind is separated from the animalistic mentality of beasts in his ability to reason ahead and, and think contemplatively about the meaning of life, whereas animals, unable to consider the shortness of life, give themselves to just consuming the next meal. Day after day, the animal is led by his hunger, his belly, And yet, how animal-like do we become when we give ourselves to the pursuit of money and fail to consider the shortness and the meaning of life? The reality of the inevitability of death ought to serve as a reminder to the futility of riches. And that's the second point the psalmist brings to our attention. The second reason we need not live in fear of those who gain wealth while we don't. The foolishness of trusting in wealth comes from the obvious truth that it cannot save a person from death. Riches cannot save a person from death. Look there at verses 5 through 9. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit? the psalmist is saying here is that it's wise to remember that wealth has no bearing on your death. You cannot take your money with you. Therefore, it's the height of folly to forget that money makes no difference. In other words, since we are eternal creatures, true wisdom teaches us that our chief concern in this life shouldn't be money and wealth the pleasures of life that we can get through what we spend. No, it should be our preparation for eternity. Where is your heart and mind focused? The French atheist Voltaire, who despised Christianity, was in fact a very rich man. Much of his wealth came from his writings, and and he became one of the most well-known men in the 18th century. Many of his sophisticated writings were widely read and, and influential throughout modern Western thought particularly his satirical attack on Christianity, Candide, through which he gained most of his wealth. Yet when Voltaire came to die, it's reported that on his deathbed he cried out to his doctor in pained desperation, I will give you half of all I possess if you will only give me six more months to live. But of course it was beyond the doctor's ability to do that. And all of Voltaire's great wealth could not slow the sure advance of death. He died rich and in utter despair. That's what verse 7 is telling us when he says that no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No amount of money can save a man from dying. Ask yourself whether or not your heart finds rest and peace and how much you save. I'm, of course, not suggesting that saving money is bad. No, that's a good and wise thing to do. But to what end? How much are we like the rich fool in Luke 12, which Mike read for us earlier, where he saved and he saved and he saved? And why? So he can give rest and peace to his own soul. Did you catch that passage when Mike read it? The man spoke to himself saying, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And it's no wonder that Jesus immediately goes into talking about anxiety and fear, saying, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is more than money and how much you can tuck away. To what end do you calm your heart with the amount of money that you have? Jesus so wisely reminds us in Luke 12... And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just ask yourself, where do you find security and comfort? What is the fate of those who trust in their wealth? Verse 14 tells us plainly. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. I'm tempted to think that the psalmist here is meditating also on Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23 where we're told that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? And yet, in an ironic twist, those who do want and want and want and want and want will not be shepherded by the great provider, Yahweh our Lord, but will instead in the end finally be shepherded by death. Their want and their desire and their trust and wealth is... Shepherd them into death. By trusting in the futility of riches, the inevitability of death will reign. There are no rich people in Sheol. This is why the psalm ends, doesn't it, with a reapplication to not fear the wealth and success of others. Verses 16 through 20. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, and he will never again see light. It was asked when the wealthy man died, how much much did he leave? He left all of it, and he took nothing with him. The riddle, then, of the psalmist centers, I think, on the heart of the issue. The real enigma here is death. What the most powerful and the most wealthy people cannot escape is the all-encompassing power of death. Money can buy you a lot of things. You can get happiness with money. You can buy freedom with money. You might even be able to attract the man or woman of your dreams with money. Are you in legal trouble? History is replete with examples of how useful money can be. Money can get you more money. It takes money to make money. But there's one thing that money has absolutely no reign over, and that is that you will die. Friend, if you're here this morning as someone who has lived your life thus far, trusting in the power of money, this psalm is here to open your eyes and to shake you out of your blindness and show you the ultimate weakness of what it is you so comfortably rest in now. Verse 13 is says that it is a foolish confidence to trust in your wealth. There will come a day when the allure of money and wealth, where the security of riches will vanish in an instant, and the only thing your heart will be consumed with is the endless eternity of darkness that awaits your eternal soul. Wake up, says our psalmist, for this foolish confidence of yours will lead you only to what verse 14 says is a death that will consume you. A death that will feed unendingly on you. What is it then that leads the writer of the psalm to ask, why should I be afraid? Why should I fear? Well, it's really in verse 15, isn't it? Where we see the writer's only hope. Here's his last point, And we see the psalmist's hope in that great phrase, but God. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he... Will receive me. What was once a riddle for this psalmist is now made so clear that even though all lives will end in death, there is one life that will not only not die, but can actually redeem our souls, ransom us from the power of death. He looks to God and he finds there in him, in God, the only source of power strong enough to actually overcome death. And he says, God will receive me. See that? There's not only hope that in God we can escape the eternal grips of death, but a hope that in God we can live before him, enjoying him, savoring his eternal presence forevermore. He receives us. In God we escape the unending doom of death's darkness and come now into the unending joy of God's light. Death is no longer our shepherd. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So friends, the, qu- the, the question before us in, in, in this riddle of a psalm is where does our hope ultimately lie? Is it in the distractions of this world? The prosperity of this world? Do we find our security, our ultimate security in how much money we have? Or is our ultimate hope and trust and confidence in God? I think the psalmist inspired as he is by the Holy Spirit, gives us glimpses why God can be our ultimate hope in the face of inevitable death. The first glimpse comes in verse 7, where we see that truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. You see that? And yet, isn't it ironic that the most predominant and most central theme of all Scripture is that it is precisely the life of another that serves as ransom for life? The entire hope of the Old Testament was in the coming Messiah, who we now know as Jesus Christ, and his ability to ransom the lives of others, to redeem the souls of all those who trust in him. And it wasn't through riches that Christ accomplished this, was it? Now, what does the Apostle Peter tell us in 1 Peter 1? You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here the psalmist is casting our eyes forward to Jesus Christ, who though he was a man, was no mere man, but the perfect God-man, who in his sacrificial death purchased us out of death's grip with the price of his own life. Now think about that. The only thing valuable enough to allow death to loosen its grip on sinners was the life of the sinless Son of God. God had to die for death to let you go. This is why verse 14 reminds us that death is a shepherd, right? But cruel and an unforgiving shepherd. Death eats away at every person he shepherds. Their form shall be consumed, says verse 14. And there is no rest in death. There is no place to dwell, says the text. It's ongoing, it's unforgiving, and it's eternally destructive. When you thought you could not take any more in the unending pains of death, and that for just one moment you might find a little bit of rest, the shepherd of death reminds you that your agony will continue for another minute, for another hour, for another day for another year, for another century, another millennium, the unending agony of death. And yet, are we not given here a glimpse of that better shepherd in whom there is found unending life? Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who says no one can come to the Father except in and through him. Jesus was so clear in John chapter 10 when he taught his disciples, and and he proclaimed of himself... I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays, his down, lays down his life for the sheep, and I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. What great news this is for us that, that we no longer have to live in fear as we exist in this rat race of a world where everyone is scurrying around seeking to gain more, make more, get more, buy more, spend more, all out of a fear of death and anxiety leading them to avoid that cruel shepherd of death that we all know is approaching. And oh, the grace and joy and life we have in Jesus Christ, our great and perfect shepherd, in whom there is unending life, abundant life. Verse 15 tells us, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And we're reminded there, aren't we, of Jesus Christ who defeated the power of death And not only succumbing to death himself, but in the power of his glorious resurrection. The the magnificence of the death and resurrection of Christ is that it's led ultimately to the death of death itself. Jesus now lives evermore, ready to receive all who by faith in him can also enjoy that same everlasting resurrection life. I want to end here by simply reading that glorious passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul, in exuberant praise, applies the beautiful truths of everything we've just been thinking through. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither can riches. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We who have trusted in Christ. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then we shall come And praise and and mock death, saying death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Yes, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we fear not, we have no need to fear if we have Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer.